Uh, let's see. Okay, I got one thing to tell you about before we start, and that is、uh, the women's、uh, ornament exchange. Now, typically every year the women get together at, at a certain point during the Christmas season, and they do this ornament exchange. And this year, the girls from IGC were like so into it; they're like, "We want to make sure it happens." So they're kind of overseeing it. And so on December twentieth, it's a Wednesday night. I don't know. I'm not doing it now.、Uh, Wednesday night, December twentieth,、uh, they're doing the women's ornament exchange. And so, if you are a lady and you want to get into some raucous action, you're going to go and you're going to pick up an ornament, okay? And if you walk by an ornament, you're like, "That's kind of questionable." Perfect, perfect ornament, okay? The more questionable, well, I shouldn't say the more question, but most of the time when it's like, "Ooh, is that appropriate?" I don't know. They will fight over those ornaments and be like dragging and pulling hair. It's awesome. No, I'm not there, but I hear about it anyway. So you're going to bring an ornament, a wrapped ornament, that wrapped ornament, and then you're supposed to bring a hearty appetizer. Hearty appetizer means it will give you a heart attack. So that's the hearty appetizer, and then, or, and if not that, you're supposed to bring a dessert. So that's kind of something wrapped in bacon or dessert. Wait, is this my party? No. Okay. So, hearty appetizer and dessert. Again, it's at six thirty, December twentieth. You put it on your calendars. If you're not already doing something already, there is childcare available, but you have to sign up so we know how many kids are going to be there that need childcare. So, I'd bring your knee pads and helmets and show up. It's going to be a good time. <laughs> I probably just totally oversold it, but maybe not. Maybe not. Anyway, okay. So, so there you go. Hey, if you're new to Element, welcome. Sorry,、uh, there are Bibles in the seats back in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes that go deeper, as well as some questions that go deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. You click on More and then Events, and YouVersion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. This is Jingle All the Way Part Two. I was looking at someone's YouVersion. It has both the Part one and part two. We're part two, and there it says live next to it. So click on that one. That's where we're at.、Uh, my name is Aaron, one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight, and it says, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose." Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand that all things working out for good is towards your good. And that we'd be a people who stand back and we trust the things that you are doing in our lives, and that would bring hope. That we would see all that you have done and all that you continue to do, and we would live lives that bring you great glory and great honor because you are good. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in this、uh, Christmas series we are calling Jingle All the Way.、Uh, usually at Christmas, family will get together at some time in, in some way, and sometimes those interactions don't always go so well because we all have weirdos in our families. I might be that guy. So we decided to do this short Christmas series called Jingle All the Way because we always feel like when these hard to deal with people show up, we have to jingle all the way. We have to be really, really happy、uh, about it.、Uh, now, and this is also the name of an old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which I needed to put an Arnold title into some series I did one day, and I couldn't really call this. It is not a tumor. So we're calling it Jingle All the Way. That, that's what I'm going with. Now, if we're if we're honest, we can admit that families are hard, right? Anybody in this room have someone not in your family? In your family, it's not hard. Just a hard person to deal with. No, right? Okay, good. We're, okay, 
Just making sure. In the church, we are also called to be a family because God pulls us into family. God adopts us. He brings us in. And But in the church, family can be hard as well. We're brothers and sisters, but if you don't have messed up people in your family, you're going to find them in the church because the church is full of messed up, messed up people. So we kind of want to teach you how to navigate some of that. And as I said last week, if you don't know any difficult people, well, you are probably the difficult person and nobody wants to tell you, but I just did. You're welcome. Merry Christmas. There you go. So how we're going to do this is we're going to look at people and some of the issues they faced in the scriptures and how that can also relate to our lives. And we must realize also that if the scriptures would talk about us, they'd be the same kind of things. We'd have all these messed up places that God would use to grow us into who he intends for us to be. Sometimes we look at stories in the Bible and we need like Mary and Joseph and the manger scene and, and the wise men and all that. And it's been so whitewashed that we don't see the reality of the situations. And we think, well, yeah, if Jesus showed up and and started to look at my family, well, he wouldn't have been so excited about that love your neighbor thing because my family's really messed up. No, what you see in the scriptures is that everybody is messed up, and it's God who brings grace and redemption to it all. These messages are also going to be a little bit shorter. Usually I'm about 35 minutes or so. These are going to be in the 20s. Another Christmas gift to you. You will not probably ever get again, but you're welcome for that. So today... We're going to talk about disappointed families, disappointed people, because you might be really disappointed that you're not going to get shorter messages after the season's over, but we'll see. I think this is a really good one for us as a people, because in our families, and many times it is us, there are people who feel disappointment with God, or disappointment with our friends, or with the world around us, or our life circumstances. And sometimes that comes out more strongly at Christmas. People may not see it, but sometimes we show it more because people come around us, and we think, oh man, they've got their life all put together. And we think, I just don't, so we get more and more disappointed with ourselves. It's interesting, in the scriptures, right before the birth of Jesus, you get a very disappointing birth narrative. And, and disappointed people are people who are like, I wish my life didn't turn out this way. I wish these things didn't lead to this. I wish all these other things. I have a good friend who is like this. And, and if I quote to him the verse we started with, Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that we... We get everything we want. It means that God works all things out to his good, to what he knows that we need. But I got a friend and I talked to him sometimes about this verse because things in his life fall apart a lot. And he says things like, well, that's for everybody except for me. He thinks God is totally out to get him and his family. It's kind of like talking to uh, like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. It's like, this is my Eeyore impersonation, okay? Everything's going to go bad. Nothing's going to work right. We're going to get in trouble. That's... Anybody? Yeah. <sighs> Am I here alone this morning? Come on, guys. I'm doing my best Eeyore here. Sometimes I think the operative word of Winnie the Pooh is poo. But my, my friend, uh, and, and I do and I do love him, but he makes this really self-fulfilling prophecy about himself. He talks about how his boss doesn't like him and makes his job really hard, but he doesn't actually do what his boss asks him to do, so he's not being a good employee. He talks about how he doesn't have any friends, even though I and I know some other people constantly go out of our way to connect and reach out to him. At one point, he ignores us all, and he moves 30 miles away from all of us and says, no one wants to come visit me anymore. It's like, dude, seriously, you moved 30 miles away. If I'm going to St. Louis, I'll swing by. But seriously, 30 miles away. His family is like this wreck, and they all kind of start to live in this depression. And he wonders what's wrong with his family when he will not step in to lead them into hope and to grace and to life. He constantly steers them back towards misery. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the scriptures don't let us give up on people like that because Jesus never gave up on us. 
We are called to continue to reach out and to love and bring hope. Dallas Willard wrote this. He said, I meet many faithful Christians who, in spite of their faith, are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean they no longer have a future. But often due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to accomplish in life they did not. They painfully puzzle over what they must have done wrong or whether God has really been with them. So distress hits their life and disappointment comes and they stop to see, they don't see that God's, what God calls you to is life in front of you. Not what's behind you, but what's in front of you. Now, before Jesus is born, before the first Christmas takes place, really the first birth narrative in the scriptures is a story of a couple named Elizabeth and Zachariah. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. What you find out right off the bat about Elizabeth and Zachariah is that they are old. Like, we're not going to buy green bananas old. Really old. And they, they tried to serve God. They wanted kids and never had them. And in that culture, that's seen as a sign of disfavor from God. And so they've kind of been walking around in their marriage and their life and what they do for years with this cloud of disappointment hanging over them. Barrenness in that culture at that time said, you displeased God. You did something wrong. Therefore, you don't get to have a baby. And this is what's wrong with religion a lot of times. When something's wrong, it's always your fault. Not saying that, you know, it's not sometimes. Like if you get paid and you buy a bunch of weed with it and you smoke it and you can't make rent, yeah, that's your fault. But sometimes there are things that come into our lives that are not our fault. And religion says, well, you just need to be better. You need to be stronger and pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and eat your Wheaties and get regular and figure it out. Religion gives people nothing. It gives people nothing but shame and unattainable goals that we can never reach. And the truth is those goals that some religions preach are goals that God may not even want you to reach. People get on TV and they will say, if you just had enough faith, God would give you whatever you want. Apparently, I don't have enough faith because I want them to go away and they don't. So... But this view was the same in the ancient world. You must not have enough faith to please God, therefore you don't get a baby. And on top of that, they always believed it was the woman's fault. There's actually this story from a couple thousand years ago of a Ugarite king who had seven wives. None of them got pregnant. He blamed all the wives. No one had a problem with that because he was the king, and kings don't shoot blanks. And I don't know if I can say that in church, but I don't, I don't know any other way to say it. So, so there you go. You fast forward a little bit later, you get, get to Rome. In Rome, a woman's inability to bear children was legitimate grounds for divorce because it couldn't be the man's fault, it's got to be hers. So they had this festival called Lupercalia where goats and dogs were sacrificed and two priests would go and cut out bits of skin and guts from these dead animals and then they would run around the Palatine Hill swinging them around. And if you were a woman who was infertile and couldn't have a baby, you would show up. And if you were lucky enough, you'd get smacked with some guts from a dog or a goat. Boom! I'm going to have a baby! How sweet is that? It's like the Oprah show before Oprah. Boom! You get a baby and you get a baby and you get a baby. Right? How crazy is that? You fast forward to medieval times and in Europe they believe that infertility could be caused by both witches and the devil or you were a witch yourself. So either you get an exorcism or burned at the stake. Pick your poison. I mean, seriously, not even considering it could have been the man's problem. We are not the only ones who respond to disappointment poorly. As I said earlier, sometimes when there's pain, Christmas can even make it more painful. And if you have disappointment in this season, let me first say this to you. Blame doesn't have any place in anyone's healing. Shame has no place in that. Okay, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they are old. And what happens is they have prayed every day for a baby. 
year after year, decade after decade, every day they're praying for a baby. And what happens when you pray for something every single day and it doesn't happen? You start to get disappointed. You start to get disillusioned. What kind of stress is that put between he and his wife? And then one day an angel shows up and they get told, you are going to have a baby. That should be joy, unspeakable joy. All the disappointment should disappear. But they have lived in that disappointment so long, I don't think they really understand how to live differently. So their reaction to this promise is a little telling. Zechariah is a priest. He serves in the temple. He is seen as a man of God. And so there's some irony in this that he is childless. It's probably why Luke says, Luke 1, starting in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So it starts off and it says, these are good people, they're from good lineage, they're from good stock. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all, how many? All the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke has to start off this narrative pointing out to you that this is not someone's fault. It's not sin that they didn't have a baby. This angel shows up and says, you are going to have a child. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? And Zechariah's response should be, that's great, sweet Jesus. Thank you. That's amazing. But that's not his response. He responds with skepticism. He responds by questioning the angel's words and questioning God's goodness. Uh, Go down to verse 18 in Luke 1. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. This is a polite way of saying, I'm going to have to buy diapers for me and the kid. What? Right? We're old. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I am like the daring Peter of angels. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you, the priest... Did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Then Zechariah, he is struck mute until the baby is born. Now, can you imagine how this conversation goes when he actually gets home and he and Elizabeth get to talk about it? I mean, it's very one-sided, right, because he's mute and he can't talk. But I just picture Elizabeth like, all these years, you think it's my fault, yet you, the priest, don't even trust God when an angel shows up and tells you we're going to have a baby. What? Nine months of that, right? <laughs> what you get for not believing God right there. And when you look at this, you really get a bird's eye view of this. This baby that's going to be born is going to be John the Baptizer, precursor to Jesus coming, right? John the Baptizer, he is a weird kid. I got to tell you, just a weird kid. And I think maybe God had them wait a really long time to have a baby. First off, the show was a miracle. But second, they had to get some things straight because they raised John the Baptizer on locusts and honey. You cannot raise a kid on bugs and sugar and have him turn out stable, right? And just, just... Really weird. But anyway, when we look at this, we see it from this outside bird's eye view. We read the whole story in like three to five minutes. We're like, oh, yeah, that's so great. That is not how disappointment typically works, though. Disappointment is year after year, and you sit in the middle of it. And you you can't just walk through it really quickly, and it starts to jade everything that's around you. That's their disappointment. What's your disappointment? What do you have in your life that keeps coming up? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. How do we trust God in the midst of disappointment? How do we hold on or understand that God is actually holding us in the midst of everything when everything says to give up? What is God doing in our lives when it looks like everything is falling apart? And if this is you and you feel like this, there is a word I want to point out to you in Romans chapter 5. Okay, Romans chapter 5 starting in verse 3 goes like this. 
Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that's, again, is an odd phrase. Like, I'm suffering. Whee! Okay. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Some translations will use the word disappoint right there. Because God is, God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, throughout various sermon series, I tell you repeatedly that this idea of suffering in our lives can actually produce growth in character. In the ancient world, this disappointment and suffering was so widely embraced that thinkers in Greece and Rome would write what they were called hardshipless. And you see the Apostle Paul actually do this. He will write about being beaten and shipwrecked and stoned. Not like that, but they throw rocks at you till you die, that kind of stone. Uh, being whipped, being uh, thrown into prison. And so they would write down all of these difficult experiences. And they would say, I've been through all of these things. These difficulties are going to make me a stronger, wiser, better person. But what Paul does in his letter to Rome is he adds a word that no Greek or Roman thinker would ever write. They would have never have added this. And it's a word that changes everything, and it is the word hope. All of these things that come into our lives are meant to come and produce hope. If All the way back in the book of Genesis, we talked about Jacob thinking his son was dead, and I talked about hope in the midst of this. And I'm going to steal my three points that I used then, because I must have stolen them somewhere because they're brilliant, so they must not have been for me. But anyway, these are my three points. Number one, a trouble and disappointment has a way of revealing and making evident our character. When something happens that is disappointing, it really, in the end, shows what we truly believe. Throughout the scriptures, you see people respond to trials in different ways. The writer of Proverbs says in 24, verse 10, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The NIV says, If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Part of what disappointing times and disappointing people does is it tests our character. Disappointment isn't just barrenness like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Everybody, every day, has hardship lists that are going. And if you're having a bad day and someone says, how's it going? We could all answer like, oh, I got this and I got this and I got this and this, because we have these hardship lists. Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. Because God is interested in our hearts. How will we respond to disappointments and interruptions? How do we respond to not getting what we want? How do we respond to health problems or when someone says no to us or we get criticized? How do we respond during the Christmas season when we're supposed to be patient and we can't be? Because i got to tell you, I am not a patient person. And Christmas always stretches that for me. Because people do not know how to drive. That's, I, sometimes I think I'm working on my patience and then I get behind somebody in the roundabout. And I'm like, oh, just don't stop. Get a big car, they'll stop. You get a beater and just drive it everywhere. I'm just like, oh, at Christmas time, I don't like to drive any time between Thanksgiving and Christmas because there's a ton of extra people on the road. They all drive 10 miles an hour under the speed limit, and I am just frustrated. Thank you, Jesus, for patience. (sighs) Okay. When you look at paths in front of you, Hey, I'm just saying, I'm like everybody else, guys. When you look at paths in front of you, we've got to make a decision. Instead of saying, hey, which one of these is easier? Maybe what we should pray is, God, which one of these is going to make me grow more? And then we did that. Because disappointment by itself doesn't produce growth. It can actually produce bitterness in some people. But if we learn to trust God in the midst of our disappointment, if we can live with confidence and joy in who He is and not get all focused upon ourselves and not make everything about ourselves, then God will use disappointment to actually bring growth into our lives. The second thing is disappointment reveals the truth about the human condition. Dallas Willard says this. He says, God's address is at the end of your rope. John Ortberg calls himself Dallas Willard for dummies. And he says, you have a rope and it has an end. If you haven't gotten there yet, you will get there one day. 
Now, I believe God is at the end of our metaphorical rope, but that is not the only place that God is. But we are a people who want to try and do everything ourselves, figure it out, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and show the world how we did it. What we have to understand is we don't even have boots, guys. Metaphorically, we, we don't have boots or straps to pull ourselves up by. Self-sufficiency, at least how we define it, is the great illusion in our lives that we are somehow in control of everything that takes place. And all we do is put up all of these things around us with our home and our family and our jobs so we can live with this illusion that somehow we're in control. But trouble comes and that illusion gets shattered with illness or loss or bankruptcy or divorce or fear. And when you are at the end of your metaphorical rope, that illusion of self-sufficiency gets shattered. And I think that's a great gift from God. That when we get disappointed, we realize we are not in control. We are not in control. We are not good gods. We must surrender our lives to Him. Number three, if deliverance is all we desire God for, then when trouble comes, our desire for God will disappear. If all you want God for is to get you out of a mess, you are using God as a good luck charm. It's like walking into the, into the restaurant, I mean, on the, on the Buddha, I mean, all money, money, money on the belly. Oh, I just want some money, money. That's what we're doing with Jesus. We're rubbing the, the lucky rabbit's foot and not really wanting to love and serve and follow him. One of the most common themes in the Bible during times of suffering is that it's those times people turn towards God and cry out to him. Not that that is bad. I'm not saying that's bad. But people in the scripture are like, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, deliver me. This is like 90% of the book of Psalms. You look at the book of Judges. It's all about this. But what you see is as soon as the pain goes away, as soon as God rescues, because God hears the cry. God really does. And as soon as the pain goes away, the oddest thing, they all start to think about God less. They start to pray a little bit less. They start to pray with less urgency. And that is just like us. When things are bad, we call out to God, Oh God, or we get mad at Him, or we barter with Him. God, if you just do this and don't let me get in trouble, I swear I'll do this and I'll never do that thing again. Oh, I I swear. But when the disappointment and the crisis is gone, so is our heart for God. Which brings us back to the words of Paul. Hopefully you're still in Romans chapter 5, because it's supposed to go so much deeper. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, David Fredrickson points out that in the ancient Greco-Roman world, thinkers often spoke about this connection between suffering and growth of character. And they might write exactly the words Paul wrote, except for that word hope. Because they believe the world is a cold, hard, impersonal place, and that the glory of an individual, much like America today, is to use our strength and our reason, which they love their reason, to use our self-sufficiency to rise above all the sufferings of life. And then through your own disciplined mind, you refuse to allow any circumstance to disturb your serenity or your calmness or your inner peace. I call this hashtag lotus position. Right? But Paul says character produces hope. Now, they would look at Paul and they would say, are you kidding me? They didn't recommend hope at all. They believed that if you had hope, you were giving up control. Hope was seen to them as a sign of weakness. In fact, some ancient writers actually said that hope was a, in quotes, moral disease. Why was it a moral disease? Because it causes what should be a strong, self-sufficient person to trust a power beyond themselves, to no longer be captain of your own ship or master of your fate. And to me, it seems that people who think they are the master of their own fate get hit by disappointed much harder than those who are trying to follow Jesus and love and serve and follow him. Maybe it's you who struggles with disappointment. Maybe it's someone in your family. It's Christmas. You've got to spend time with them. So, so what do you do? I am so glad you asked me that question. So let me answer it, okay? In the ancient world, just like ours, suffering was easier if it could be shared with somebody. 
if you're walking through life with somebody else. Aristotle said, suffering is lightened by the sympathy of a friend. And so sometimes a friend might be willing to step in and, and suffer with you and, and sometimes maybe even to die for a friend. And that, they thought that was very noble. Cicero would write how uh, in these times they would have these plays and people would go to these plays and they'd watch this thing acted out on a stage and there'd be a scene where somebody died for their friend and people would rise to standing ovations and people would weep at the sight of a friend sacrificing his life for a friend. I would say one of the one of the best ways you can help during someone time's disappointment is walk with them through that. Not that you have to get all disappointment, but you can bring hope. You don't have to have all the answers. What you do is you talk about the hope of the gospel, that Jesus can and will and does make all things new by his own death and resurrection. He can make us new all of our lives. But there's also a very important thing in the ancient world that loved to talk about this sacrificing for a friend is they had these limits on that. There were these limits to the backdrop of what Paul is talking about in Romans 5. Because in the ancient world, they would say that friend that you were going to enter into their suffering or maybe die for has to be a person of high virtue, a person who is worthy, who deserves the sacrifice that you will make. They actually said it is not a virtue to suffer for an unvirtuous person. And then, even when you do help somebody or sympathize with somebody or walk with somebody through something, you're not allowed to have that suffering disturb your own tranquility. So you can never be truly empathetic. So this is why Paul writes these words. Romans 5.3, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why doesn't hope put us to shame? Is it because we're such great hopers? We're so wonderful? No, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, how does that happen? Paul goes on, For while we were still weak, this would be unworthy. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That's written to that ancient world to be like, yes, that's true. You know, if, if they're good enough, it just might happen. Not often, but, but it just might happen. But Paul says that God shows his love for us and now we are, while we were still sinners, while we were undeserving, while we were unworthy, while we were a complete mess, Christ died for us. That's hope. That's hope. Why does hope not disappoint? It's not because it's your strength or my strength. It's not because everything's going to turn out in this life the way we want it to. It's not because we have conquered everything in our lives through our supremely powerful, self-sufficient reason. Hope does not disappoint because hope is centered in the person of Jesus. Jesus, as an act of complete love and grace, chose to give his life and suffer and die for us to bring us back into relationship with God. That is the good news. That is why hope does not disappoint. If you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, you see that God used their barrenness for his glory. He brought about his power at all pointed to God's final plan of redemption that's now at hand in Jesus. I got this quote. I think it was by Oswald Chambers, but I can't remember where it was actually from. But this is it, talking about Elizabeth and Zechariah. It says, Their suffering turned to joy reminds us that in the pain of our own trials, our limited perspective is not able to grasp the good plans that our kind God is perfecting for us. In the midst of it, we're not able to see what God is doing, but God is kind, and He is good, and He is rescuing, and He is bringing hope to every single one of us. We are called to be a people who trust God and have hope in the midst of our disappointments because it is God who rescues us. And this is what I think we're meant to see when disappointed family comes around, or maybe you're the disappointed, or maybe you feel like the disappointment. 
that it is Jesus who rescues. You don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You trust in his goodness because that's where our eyes should be. Are you a disappointed person? How do you respond to God's promises? What is God doing in your life even today? Do you feel like in your life you're a disappointment to somebody around you? I will first tell you this. Shame has no place in that. Okay? God can come with a spirit and you know, pump guilt in there and say, hey, but shame, shame is a place where you live. And we are not called to live in a place of shame. We're called to live in the place of understanding ourselves as the children of God. That doesn't mean we do whatever we want because God says, oh, yeah, go. It means that we are a people who get to live in the hope that he provides, that he doesn't leave us in those places. All things work together for good for those who love God. God's good brought about in our lives because of what he is doing. Our God is gracious. Our God is kind. Our God is amazing. And hope does not disappoint because our hope is in the person of Jesus. Our hope isn't in hope. Our hope isn't what Jesus has done. And this is why we talk about communion every week, where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of what God did to rescue us. Everything that separated us from God and us from one another, this thing we call sin, Jesus took care of at the moment of the cross. Why does hope not disappoint? Because Jesus paid the price for us to bring us back into relationship with him. Why? Because he loves us. And we call that grace. And sometimes because of how we live in our lives, I have no idea why he loves us the way that he does. It's simply because he is so good. Because I know myself, I am hard to love. Just hang out with me sometimes and be like, oh yeah, man, you're totally hard to love. God loves me. It's crazy. It's crazy. So this morning, I'm going to invite you guys to communion. The band's going to come up. And as they do, as you go to communion, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place today where you feel like you are a disappointment and you live in the midst of that shame of, of feeling always like you are letting everybody down, I would love for you to go and talk and pray with them because they would love to talk to you about this. If you have disappointing people coming over at Christmas and you don't know how to deal with them, you want someone to pray with you about that, they would love to pray with you about that. They would love to to sit down with you and to start walking through some of this and, and then pray with you so that Jesus would lead you into who you're meant to be in those interactions. Because our God is great. Our God is good. We're not meant to be a people who spend our lives in disappointment. Suffering produces character, produces endurance, which leads to hope. It's all meant to go there. It's going to, why? Because of what Jesus has done to rescue us. So we get to be a people who live in this great hope. There are offering boxes on next to all the doors. I also always want to say by the side walls in the back because that's what we used to say, but on, next to all the doors. And we give simply because God gave so much to us. It's part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's meant to be a response to what God is doing and working in our own hearts. Uh, there's food outside. We invite you to grab some to eat, uh, grab some sermon notes, meet some other people, and maybe today you can have some conversations with a new friend you made or with your family or with a gospel community. And you can start to walk through some of those things. Like, like what has brought about disappointment in your life? How did you deal with that? Are, are you still dealing with that? How does hope speak into those places and times? And then how can we as a people be those who share that grace and that hope with everyone? Because we have been called by God to love him because he first loved us. And we get to live in the great hope that he provides. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, we ask that you would grow us into who you have always called us to be that we would honor you through the tough times and the, and the suffering that we endure. For the people in this room today, Father, who are dealing with disappointment, 
I ask that you would steer their hearts to the place that they would begin to see that you are the hope of the world. And that you have stepped into the mess that we so often create. And you build us back up and you call us back home again. I ask that you would teach us to be astounded, just astounded at your mercy and your love that is given to us. And that we wouldn't take that and make it all about ourselves, that we'd see that it is all about you. And we begin to live out this life for your glory in this world, that we would truly step into being your ambassador so we would speak of this hope and this grace and this life that you provide. That our eyes would move off of ourselves and onto you and the understanding of the great goodness of who you are. That you have done everything conceivable to restore us to relationship with you again. And in that restoration of relationship with you, send us out to restore broken relationships in our lives and in the lives of those around us because we live as your people in this world. Teach us to honor you in all things because you are so good. Have us worship you daily as the hope of this world and the hope of our lives. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.